You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. How are we doing this morning, Embassy? Or this morning, this afternoon? How are we doing? Good? Merry Christmas? Oh, we're having technical difficulties. You want me to get the handheld? Yep, handheld. All right. Is this better? That's way better. See, I tried to go Michael Jackson mic, and it just didn't work, you know? I wanted to spruce it up for you guys. I wore my um, 2005 blue blazer um, to spruce it up, and then try to do a nice mic, and uh, that didn't work out, so here we are. Um, it is good to be with you. Again, Merry, Merry Christmas. Super glad you're here, and like Maria said, if you're a guest, um, super, super glad you're here. Um, my name is Chris Cook. I'm the lead pastor here, and man, this is, this is just right, you know? It just feels good. Uh, this is the first time we, ha- as a church plant, have ever done a Christmas service, which is super exciting for me. Um, and we planted this church in COVID, and so that was weird, um, and that kind of affected not doing a Christmas service, right, because everyone sees family and then comes back, and then, yeah, that just gets weird, and, um, and so, yeah, this just feels good and right to be able to be in the room with you guys um, and just celebrate what a special day uh, tomorrow is. Um, because I wasn't able to kind of do that mingling thing, I'll throw my hat in the ring. We are a... Um, a present on Christmas Eve kind of family. Like, we like a, a present appetizer. I actually already gave Allie my present. Uh, it's on her ears. Um, you know, yep, jewelry, did it right. Um, you know, Kendra Scott delivered early, and she saw it, and I was like, well, that's anticlimactic. Um, and she does our budget anyway, so she saw it come through on the Visa credit card. But anyway, it's the thought that counts. Love you, baby. Um, but we are, yeah, we're, we're a present appetizer kind of family. Um, and not dogmatically, like not like real tree over fake tree or no carols before Thanksgiving kind of thing, um, but, but just a soft, you know, present appetizer kind of family. So anyway, um, but for Christmas, uh, uh, the big thing that, that we celebrate with our gifts, more importantly, when we give them or when we don't, um, is that we, we, we give them as a way to celebrate the gift that is Christmas, okay? Um, because the scriptures tell us that uh, for Christmas, more than Christ being born, he was given, John 3 says that for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And so Christmas is a special time for us um, because it's a time to remember uh, what a gift the world has received in Jesus Christ. Amen? What a gift, if, if you're a Christian, you have received in Jesus Christ, um, this, this new life and this person um, and what he's done for you. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't think we can, um, we can celebrate enough how special um, this uh, season is, how special uh, tomorrow is, and we've done a lot of waiting um, as a church um, in the best way, a lot of worshipful waiting uh, leading up to it. Um, we spent the entire month of December uh, in a carol series um, just to kind of lean into Advent, this season of waiting for this gift to come. And the season of Advent um, is, is appropriately this worshipful waiting. And so we've, we've kind of taken a carol um, that our, our wider culture likes to sing, um, taken off the top shelf, if you will, dusted off, and looked at one each Sunday morning. Um, and so uh, this afternoon, we'll do the same uh, and take kind of our final carol off the top shelf and dust it off and look at it. And, and the reason we've done this is I think a lot of times the songs we know by heart, um, we miss the message beneath the music. And so each week we've tried to take a carol, uh, look at it, look at the corresponding passage of Scripture 
uh, that it speaks to and let the carol kind of warm the scripture and the weight of the scripture kind of give um, some, some depth to the carol. Uh, and so tonight uh, we get to look at, no, one, no, the, how do I say that? None other than O Holy Night. All right, and so that's just appropriate, um, and that means you're going to have to sing it later, um, which is tough um, because um, none of us are Mariah Carey, uh, lover, uh, queen of Christmas, um, big Mariah Carey fan. I grew up in the 90s, you got to be, and um, Oh Holy Night's this, this famous, popular, just extremely popular uh, contemporary carol because of just what, right, the, the, the range uh, of vocal talent that it takes to sing the song, the crescendos of the song and how high they are. And if the song's not ringing a bell, you'll hear everyone next to you sing it very terribly um, in a little bit. Um, and so hopefully we'll just turn Eric up really loud uh, and he'll do a great job. But it's a hugely popular song. And um, I didn't know this before I started doing research on the carol, but that's really the only the case in the last 20 years. As Mariah Carey, uh, Celine Dion, Josh Groban, man, his version is amazing. Um, they released these uh, renditions and sold millions and millions of copies. And so our culture, uh, by and large, loves this carol. Um, but its contemporary popularity also has a lot of historical controversy that goes with it. Um, it was written uh, way back in 1847 by a French poet uh, named Placide Chapeau, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. Um, and then was later composed by a man named Adolf Adam. Uh, and, and the story behind the carol was that a, a priest in a small town in France um, was, was renovating the organ for the church, and he asked this local poet uh, to write a poem to commemorate uh, the, the renovation of the organ, and, um, and that was Chapeau, and he writes this beautiful poem uh, and then eventually puts it to music, uh, and it, it became this famous um, French hymn, uh, Cantique de Noël. Um, and it was later um, translated into English and brought to America uh, by a um, Unitarian pastor, actually, Dwight, excuse me, John Sullivan Dwight, um, who changed some of the lyrics of the, uh, the hymn. And I'll read one of the lines, um, and it'll kind of give you some, some understanding of why he changed it. He was really big into the abolitionist movement at the time. Uh, going on uh, with slavery in America. And so he added the lines, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. And so um, there's a lot of controversy, interesting enough, uh, uh, behind the, the author of the hymn, the composer of the hymn, um, because the author eventually denounced the church and walked away uh, from his faith. Um, there's controversy around um, the translator of the hymn, bringing it from French to English um, because of the, the kind of loose liberal theology that sat beneath um, uh, his, uh, his belief system. And, um, and then now it, it's become this, this strangely popular song. Um, and I think, um, I think there's not a better carol maybe to grab to look at um, because the words still say what's right and good and true about the incarnation. And so let me read for us at least the first stanza of O Holy, Holy Night and let it lead us into the Christmas story. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O hear the angel voices. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. 
Now, again, these, these beautiful words were composed some 150 years ago in a small town in France, and they were composed by a man named Chapeau who is just pondering the incarnation. He's pondering this, this Christmas story that we have here uh, in Luke 2. And so I want to read this famous Christmas story, these famous seven verses. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can look with me or you have a handout. But this is what Luke 2 says, probably the most famous passage in literature in the world. It says this, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David. To be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, again, this is, this is what Chapeau is, is picturing as he's pondering, and he writes this famous, this famous poem, and he captures it in a phrase, right? Oh, holy night. And the question I, I, I kind of want to get at tonight as we look at the Christmas story is what makes it such a holy night? What makes it such a night divine? Now, Chapeau says it's because it's the night when Christ was born. I think that's true, but there's some things about the holy night that this passage tells us that, that I think are, are super important for us not to miss. And, and the danger, I think, is, is the familiarity of this text, like the familiarity of the song. It helps us understand maybe the music line by line, but we miss the message. And so I want to give us three things. I know we got kids filling around, uh, and so I'll make it quick. But three things that this holy night tell us that we, we shouldn't miss. The first is this. This holy night tells us that God interrupted our history. I want you to look at the first three verses. What I love about Luke's gospel, unique from the other three Gospels, is that Luke takes painstaking um, effort to apply every little detail. He almost does really, really great historical work, actually. Uh, if you look at the first couple opening lines of Luke's Gospel, uh, he, he says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative about events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down, it also seemed good to me, since I carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you would know with certainty the things you have been instructed. You see, Luke was, man, uh, really a historian of the first rate, at least in the ancient times. And, and what he's writing in these first three verses, what he's trying to say is ultimately that this isn't myth, this isn't legend, this isn't a, a once upon a time story. He's trying to say that this happened in human history. And so he gives us who's Caesar, who's governor, and what's going on. And what does this mean? What this means is I don't think the Christmas story can be put off as something that's not consequential to our lives. Right? We can't just write off Jesus as somebody that, that, that never was or somebody that, that was a great idea or somebody that was more fanciful. Luke is trying to get us to consider the fact that Jesus is a historical figure. And because he's a historical figure, each and every person who has ever lived has to deal with who they think that he is. 
right? So the Christmas story first, the Holy Night first tells us that God interrupted our history and doesn't leave us with an option to dismiss it as myth or legend or fanciful thought. The second thing that this Holy Night tells us is that God called a shot. Now, I'm a baseball fan. Um, I'm a baseball fan more in the fall than the rest of the year. But um, it's one thing to start maybe a major league career and hit a home run. Anybody have any idea how many people have done that in their MLB career? Don't be shy. You can shout out a number. You're going to be wrong, but you can shout out a number. Nope, 133. 133. 133 people started their major league career with hitting a home run their first at bat, and that's impressive. But you can go, man, that's just lucky, right? It's a whole other thing to do something like Babe Ruth, right, who in the 1932 World Series pointed his bat at center field and called his shot. In the biggest moment when it was needed most, he said, I'm going to hit a home run, and he did it. And that's, that's, that's unbelievably impressive, Right, the picture we get here is, is, is almost kind of baseball analytical picture of, of God calling his shot. Because again, what Luke is doing is not just giving us human history and locating the birth of Jesus in a point in a time, but he's giving us biblical prophecy. Verses four through six is Luke's way of telling us that God called his shot, that there is prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling from a long, long time ago. Okay, and not just any prophecy, prophecy over his birth. Now, I don't know about you, but, but nothing on my birth certificate did I have any control over, uh, over writing. Um, I actually didn't like my name growing up. That's not why I have a nickname, Critter. Um, I just didn't like it because it has 11 letters, and when you're like seven trying to spell Christopher, it's terrible, right? And so um, nothing in my birth certificate, from my name to my parents to where I was born, um, was, was my choice. I had no agency over it. And this is the idea that, that, that Luke is getting at in these short verses. What he's trying to point out about the, the incarnation is that Jesus had no control over these, these prophecies being fulfilled, over who he would be, where he would be born, who he would be born to, yet we have all of these, these, these biblical prophecies in 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 7 and Micah 5 that tell us that this is not just some ordinary babe in a manger, all right? So first and foremost, this holy night tells us that God interrupted human history. Second, it tells us that God called a shot. And lastly, it tells us that God resides ultimately with those who make room. Look at verse 7. It says this. It says, Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I want you to consider that. I want you to consider the fact that God went through such incredible lengths to make sure that the world didn't miss him. Right? That, he, that he broke into human history so that we wouldn't miss him, that, that, that he told us that he was going to do it so that we wouldn't miss him, yet he was still born in such relative obscurity, in a small town in the middle of nowhere to no ones. And there was no room for him in the end. 
What does that tell us about our Savior? What does that tell us about who God is? Well, ultimately, I think it tells us this. It tells us that he comes humble, that he comes unassuming, and that he comes and he resides with those who are also humble and unassuming and who make room for him. It tells us that no matter how messy or unprepared or undignified a place or a life may be, if we make room for him, he's coming. This is the, the, the powerful truth about this holy night. Because the God that it pictures is so different from the God that you or I would make up. It pictures a God that doesn't want us to miss him. That he broke into human history so we, we, we couldn't miss him. He told us he was coming so we couldn't miss him. And he shows up in the messiest, dirtiest, most ordinary of places like a stable. And this is a beautiful truth for us, right? Because not only is this true in, in that holy night 2,000 years ago, this is true in the night of every Christian's life. When someone becomes a Christian... It's them making room for God to show up, to come into the mess of their life, the ordinariness of their life, and bring them rebirth. That's what makes a Christian. That's what a Christian celebrates every single Christmas. It's a beautiful truth. And so I, I want to conclude and tie this up, going back to that question of what makes a holy night, what makes a night divine. God interrupted our history 2,000 years ago. God called his shot hundreds and thousands of years before that. And God broke into this world and, and resided with those that he made room. But that's in a general sense. Where I really want to press us tonight um, is what about on a personal level, in a very specific sense? The carol if you have it in your hand, uses these powerful words in th the third line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. The idea of the world being inclusive, not excluding. I think a lot of times we, we look at the Christmas story and we believe it in generalities, but it never really hits us personally. Right? The truth is we all lay in sin and error pining, and the only thing that will change that is Christ appearing in our soul, feeling his worth. Right? The, the, the only thing that makes this a holy night, really, is if it's a holy night for us, personally. The only thing that changes Christmas, I, I can say personally, that changed it for me was when I had my, my almost own holy night, when I understood my sin and error. And I understood the Savior and what he did for me. Not just for the world in general, but for me specifically. And so maybe my, my ask for us, my challenge for you this Christmas is, have you had your own holy night? As you celebrate Christmas year after year, is it just a general celebration of what God did out there and did for the world? Or do you know it for what God did for you? Have you made room for Jesus as your own personal Savior 
the Savior of the world? Is he yours? And if so, what's the response of that? For the Christian, it's worship. It's worship. It's falling on your knees, right? It's, it's recognizing that God could do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And though you and I are more wicked than we dare to imagine, more loved than we dare to believe. And so my, my hope for us as we kind of close out, as the band comes forward, is that this Christmas would be a worshipful one. This Christmas would be a, a Christmas that maybe we, we think about what tomorrow night is differently because we consider it divine in a different way. It's a powerful idea that if, if the arrival of King Jesus can make a night holy, a night divine, what could he do to your life? He could make it holy. He could make it divine. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus can do for you what you could never do for yourself. And all it takes is making room for him. And so I pray that if you haven't done that, if you're here as a guest, as a friend, if you've maybe experienced Christmas after Christmas after Christmas, and it's all just been general niceties, kindness, ideas of, of what God did out there one day 2,000 years ago, that you'd know it personally, and it would change you, and ultimately, it'd move you to, to worship. So let me pray for us, and then my hope would be that we would... Um, yeah, we'd stand and we'd sing and we'd give God all the glory due his name for what he's done. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this Christmas. We thank you for this holy night that's coming, this night divine. And I pray for every single person in this room. I pray that um, it wouldn't just be a, a holy night for the world, but a holy night for them. It wouldn't just be a divine night for the world, but a divine night for them that they would know you as Savior, as Lord. Now that their soul would feel the worth of who you are and what you've done for them. And it would change them. I pray that it would change us, that we'd never be the same as we just gaze at what you've done for us, sending your son. What an incredible truth. They didn't just come. He came as a gift to give up his life for us. So we love you, we praise you, and we worship you with all that we are. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.